Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you on this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by Tom Hennick. He is Public Education Officer with the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Aaron. Thank you for the invitation. Well, Tom, how has FOI, open access to government documents and meetings, changed in the last year or so during the pandemic? It's changed um, significantly in, in a couple of areas, Aaron. It's um, it was a it was a challenge, especially for those of us who are technologically challenged. But when it when it first hit, we got a lot of calls and concern uh, emails from from public agencies wondering how they were going to conduct business. But then the governor, I guess for lack of a better word, relaxed some of the requirements for open meetings and actually wound up opening them up to a lot more people by allowing these boards and commissions to meet virtually. Uh, it, it used to be that there had to be a central location. And whereas uh, board and commission members could could phone in or you know Skype in or Zoom in, uh, the, there was no way for the public to participate that way. And what the new, well, well not new, the governor's executive order did, executive order 7B, was allowed boards and commissions to meet virtually with everybody, you know, at their homes so that they could remain safe. And then the the requirement was that there be real-time access for everybody. So when you posted your agenda for your meeting, you also had the Zoom link or the Skype link or whatever you were going to use, uh, WebEx. And and that sort of has, has opened the door for more people looking in or part, not, not participating because but just uh, being able to observe and that's a that's a huge change and and what we found it's anecdotal we don't haven't done any surveys or anything but it seems that more people are just sort of looking in on their on their governments because they they can do it they can sit at their dinner table and oh the dinner's over let's turn on the meeting and they can and the people have noticed sort of an uptick a, a definite uptick in people um, paying attention to what's going on. So it's it's actually been sort of an unintended consequence, allowed government to function. Now, there have been many situations with technolo- technological problems because this sort of happened all at once. Oh, the link didn't work. The phone number was wrong. Um, the camera shut off, you know, things like that. But in general, it's been a it's been a positive experience. And there's also been a lot of innovation. I know there was a town meeting in Vernon that was was drive through. Have you seen other instances of that around the state? Drive through. Uh, it's funny. Uh, before we we started talking last week, I talked to somebody about a town meeting, and of course, with a town meeting, the town meeting form of government, the only people allowed to vote are people who are you know property owners. And so, how do you verify that somebody's a property owner when you when they're not you know in person checking in? And they had set up this setup where uh, you entered the meeting through a chat a chat room or a, pri- a breakout room, I guess they call it. And at, in the breakout room, they verify your identity and then you move on to the main meeting, things like that. 
so that so that people could still uh, participate. Others have gone to you know, some of them held their their budget sessions outdoors. Um, yeah, just various ways to try to make sure that everybody was accounted for. Now, with this open access electronically, I'm guessing there have also been some drawbacks. I'm thinking if you're trying to go to your local town hall to get a copy of a document or something and town hall isn't open or it's only open by appointment. So it's it's a two-sided coin, isn't it? Right. Uh, you know, Aaron, that, that raises another great point. Um, the FOI Act allows people to either get a copy of a record or inspect a record. And if you want to inspect a record in a building that's closed, that's problematic. Uh, and so what has happened is some of these agencies, again, have, have gotten innovative. They said, well, we're not, we, we're not going to open the building just for you, but we'll put it uh, on a thumb drive or we'll put it on a disc and send it to you. Others have literally met people outside when the, when the weather was nicer, obviously not in the, in the dead of winter, uh, have said, okay, well, there's, a, there's a picnic table outside town hall. We'll bring the records out there and you can look at them there. Um, again, folks have tried to comply, but there have been, there are roadblocks caused by the, by the health crisis that we're dealing with. So all things considered, once we emerge from the pandemic, what changes might stick around? Do you think town meetings via Zoom are here to stay? That's a terrific question. I think I'll, I'll break that kind of into two parts. I think they are here to stay to a certain extent. I think more, Aaron, with the with the board and commission meetings. You know, I, I served on a board in my town, and actually, I'm back on another board. And the you know having to rush home after work and then go to a, a meeting, a lot of people uh, are more comfortable, you know, staying home. You're, you're home. You just turn on the computer. So I, I think there's there's a move toward that, not only for the board members but also for the general public. I think in a situation though, when we're, when we're talking about public hearings and again, the town meetings we were talking about before, I think those would tend to still have a, an in-person component at least because um, people like to interact and they like to, to, to see the, the board and the commission people who are in front of them. I, I've had some people suggest that any new legislation should include the requirement that every board member have his or her camera on, that they have a right to see the, see the, Decision makers, uh, you know, when you turn the camera off, you can't see a facial reaction, you can't see body language, things like that. So I think there's there's a happy medium, and you know, you make reference to what's going to continue. There are, by last count, I think five or maybe six different pieces of legislation proposing ways to codify some of the executive orders pertaining to open meetings. Um, so we'll see which one emerges, and we'll see what the new rules are. Now, I know you were busy at the FOI Commission even before the pandemic. What have you seen in terms of FOI complaints over the past year, and how have you been adjudicating them? Well, again, the, the adjudicative process has been slowed, but what we have done is uh, we, we are now holding the hearings virtually like everybody else, and we're in the process of, of refining. Uh, those were all done audio, audio only, uh, audio remote hearings. And now we're also refining the process where we have video hearings as well. Um, what we what we have tried to do is um, sort of speed it up as best we can. But again, we're limited by the number of people we're allowed to have in the building at the same time too. So you know, whereas we were holding three, sometimes four hearings a day, now we're down to two. And if one of them gets postponed or canceled for some reason, we've, we've kind of got to avoid. So, so we're trying to do the hearings remotely to try to catch up a little bit on the backlog. 
the uh, the extension of the deadline helps a, a tremendous amount. And as far as the kinds of complaints that are coming in, you'd be surprised. Many people, many of the complaints look as if people are oblivious to what's going on around us. You know, I asked for the records. They didn't give me the records. They're taking too long. Um, the meeting wasn't properly noticed. There have been a, a handful of complaints directly linked to sort of pandemic relating related activities like the Zoom link didn't work or they didn't give me the Zoom link. They held the meeting and the public didn't couldn't see what's going on. Um, but for the most part, the, the, the nature of the complaints has been pretty standard. In terms of FOI requests, there are many times that a journalist will will make a request because they're working on a story. But in many more instances, it's just an average citizen seeking information from their government. It's a terrific point, Aaron. A lot of people say that this is a, a, a media law, and it, it really isn't. If you look at our numbers, uh, I, I would argue that it's it's not, that, that fewer than 10% of our complaints come from members of the media. Most of them come from, from common people looking for records or unhappy that they weren't able to, you know, attend the meeting properly, things like that. An executive session was improper. So, so yes, the media makes use of it and, and maybe perhaps doesn't file as many complaints because the media knows the law better than someone who's you know, not, not well-versed in it. But the majority of the complaints that we get are from uh, citizens who, who believe that their rights to access are being denied. Now, you mentioned executive session. So why don't you give us a refresher? When are officials allowed to, to close the door to the public and debate certain issues? There's, there's actually a couple of paths that boards can take. You know, the, the legislature back in 1975, give them, give them credit, tried to create a balance, understanding that not everything was really appropriate to be discussed in public. So there, there are five specific reasons for an executive session. There's a personnel matter. There's a legal matter, pending claims or pending litigation. There's a security matter. There's a, a land transaction. And there's a, there's a fifth reason that's a little broader that allows discussion of a, of a content about the content of a document or documents that a board believes are exempt from disclosure. The best example for that one, Aaron, would be uh, a board asks its attorney for a written legal opinion. And uh, the written legal opinion comes back. So the board becomes the client. It wouldn't have to share that because of the attorney-client privilege. So it could go into executive session to talk about uh, the advice that has been given by its attorney. You know, the personnel personnel matter would would be more about you know the performance, the evaluation, the health of an employee, and the board could do that. Now, the employee does have the right to demand that it be done in public. So so the key there is that for all the five reasons for executive session the board would have to cite the reason specifically so that the public knows why it's being shut out. And then it would have to vote to go into executive session by a two thirds vote of those board members who were present and voting. In executive session, the board could go ahead and talk about the issue, but if it's going to take any action, it must come out to vote. So the, those, those five reasons for an executive session, uh, it, we, we see it misused sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's an, it's an important tool, though, that boards can use because there's some discussions that really probably, you know, if you're talking about an employee who's been accused of something, say, and you have no idea whether the whether the charges are false or, or, or true or, or somewhere in between, you wouldn't want to sort of air those in public without finding the facts. So you could do that kind of thing. You could have that kind of discussion behind closed doors. 
There's, there's also another avenue that's not executive session. We talk about uh, excluding the public. Legislature carved out a certain number of sort of areas where boards could meet and not even worry about doing the, the, the notice and, and things like that. Uh, collective bargaining, chance gatherings, executive level searches, things like that can be conducted without the public presence. You're listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Tom Hennick. He is public education officer with the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission. Tom, tell us about some of the legislation working its way through the General Assembly, both proposed laws that the FOI Commission supports and those that it, it doesn't. Right. Well, you know, I, I referenced the, the idea that some of these remote meeting requirements, uh, opportunities would be codified. And we, we support the basic concept because that's clearly uh, going to create more transparency. We think if the more people who have access, we believe the better off we're all going to be. And some of those, you know, some of the devil does have, fall into the details. You have situations, well, how do we handle this? And, and, you know, one of the things in the governor's executive order, for instance, was a requirement that uh, documents related to the meeting be posted on the website. And, and we want to make sure that that's clear exactly what that means, how, how many, what they refer to. Um, so, so we're working with language on that. There's, there's language about, you know, trying to make sure that, that people have that real-time access and they understand that that means that FOI gives you the right to attend the meeting. I'm, I'm using air quotes, but attend the meeting, and, but not necessarily to participate. A lot of people think that just because you're you're on camera now you can participate, but the FOI Act only allows you to attend and observe. It doesn't it doesn't give you the right to participate. So those sort of things have to be clarified in the different pieces of legislation. But we're kind of we're actually kind of excited about it to see how it turns out. The the problem right now as we're as we're speaking is that there are multiple proposals to to codify this, each one with a little bit of a different twist. So we're, we're just trying to make sure that we have a seat at the table to let people know what the FOI Commission's uh, opinion. I mean, after all, this would be a major change to our law. And so we want to make sure we're, we're on top of that and, and that we're, we're able to sort of have, our, have input so that the, the changes, which many, most of which I would say are well-meaning and, and in favor of things transparent, Aaron, uh, are, are worded so that we're not left with too many things to have to try to interpret once the law takes effect. You said you, said, you mentioned some of the other ones. Um, you know, there's there's a, a proposal that would um, you, you mentioned uh, when we were talking previously about adding people to the protected address list. I, I've got to be honest with you on that one. That's not something that we we favor. There's a section in the FOI Act 1-217 which says that public agencies don't give out the home address certain individuals who uh, work in certain classifications, uh, police, fire, and, and everybody thinks that that sort of protects their address, address uh, uniformly. Well, it doesn't apply to tax records. It doesn't apply to land records. It doesn't apply to voter records. And, and it was well-intentioned when it was written back in the late 90s, um, primarily for police officers, so that someone couldn't you know, go into a police station after getting out of prison and find out where the officer who put them there lived. You know that that made all the sense in the world, but but today today people don't don't go, don't do that. They they Google people. They you know we have so many ways to find people's addresses. 
So the law doesn't really, that, that particular uh, statute doesn't have a whole lot of impact anymore. And, and, and in addition to that, we, we think that there's an inequity there. We think that if you're going to do something like that, then the smartest thing to do would be to take the home address of all public uh, employees off the boards. And so that if they're just not available. If you're really worried about the security, that would, and we've proposed that before, it just never went anywhere. We think that would be a better way to go with something like that. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other some of the other ideas. Um, did you have any specifics that you wanted to ask about that you may have seen? Well, rewinding uh, to pre-pandemic times, there has been this issue where people want to get a copy of a document and show up at town hall or another government building and plan to scan it with their phone and then find out they're going to get charged for that. And there right. is uh, a proposal to clarify uh, what is chargeable that. and what isn't. Great, great, great point on that one. So the, the, the backstory on that is that there is a provision in the act that allows an individual, allows an individual to use a handheld scanner to, uh, to copy a record and the, the agency can charge $20 for the use of that scanner. Now, the problem is that, that when the, once that law was finally enacted and, and sort of came into being, people stopped using the scanners and they started using their phones. So people think that they can show up with their phones and take pictures. And when you read the law carefully, Technically, an agency doesn't have to allow that. They can say, you know what, we're not, the law doesn't say we have to let you use your phone because the, the handheld scanner in the law is defined very clearly. It's a bonding device and it, it's very specific as to what it might be. So they say, well, why can't we use our phones? And the, and the reality is because it doesn't technically fit that, that definition. We've suggested, and, and we've worked with the town clerks on this, and, and other entities around the state as a compromise. Look, if if they if they want to use their phones, let's not let's not set up roadblocks to to open this here. Tell them that you'll let them use the phone as a substitute for the scanner, but that you'd like to collect the fee. Now, the fee question is is a separate issue. Uh, if the fees are changed or or removed by the legislature, that you know that's up to them. But we think that the that the key part is, regardless of what the fee structure ultimately is, is that the phones should now be joined with the scanners as a way that people could come and get copies of, of, of records and make the copies on their own. As part of that, there's also a either that bill or a separate bill that looks looks to reduce the fees. Right now, uh, there are no there are no fees for electronic records. There's fee for paper copies, I mean, 25 cents for a state agency, 50 cents for a municipal agency, but uh, there's, a, there's a bid to, to lower those as well. Again, from, from my perspective, that's, that's really a matter for the legislature to work out with the towns. From an FOI perspective, if there were no fee at all, that would be great. But the reality is that, that sometimes these records requests are put, uh, you know, I don't wanna call it a burden, but they're, they're a responsibility that the agencies have in addition to some of the other things they do, and the fees sometimes help them offset the cost. Now, there are many ways a public agency can run afoul of FOI laws, and not all of them are nefarious. What would you say the, the most common pitfall is for, for a violation? The, the most common one on the, on the meeting side is sort of the unintentional, improper, I, I don't want to use the word illegal because only our commission could, could call it that, but the improper meeting. Where, where a, a quorum of a board gets together and has a discussion and, and doesn't realize that it's having a meeting and it, and it should have done, done its work in public. You know, Aaron, it's, a, it's a topical to mention 
that there was a fairly uh, significant Supreme Court decision that just came down uh, when it has to do with the, the whole quorum issue. And, and it involved a case that the FOI Commission, frankly, lost before the Supreme Court that we find somewhat distressing. And we had been telling people for years that even absent a quorum of a board, and quorum being one, you know, one more than half, that you could uh, you could be having a meeting that that should be subject to FOI. And the Supreme Court basically said no, that that if it's not a quorum, it's not a it's not a meeting. And we we believe that, you know, whereas some of the things we've talked about have been positive, we believe this is uh, potentially a, a, a terribly negative. Uh, situation could be could be impactful in that people will say, okay, a quorum of our board is four, so three of us are going to go off and, and do the budget together. And since it's not a meeting, we don't need to worry about FOI. And every time I hear that, don't need to worry about FOI, I get nervous. I mean, someone's trying to skirt the uh, the obligation to be open and transparent. So you know that that whole quorum issue with meetings uh, has has become a problem. That that's that's where most agencies sort of innocently run afoul of the law. And when on the record side, what I would say is they 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 think that something is a record that's not public. Oh, that's in a personnel file. We're not that's a, that can't be a public record. Well, yeah, agencies lose sight of the fact that everything they have is defined as a public record. Yes, there are different records that can be withheld, there are different exemptions, there are different things you're not allowed to withhold, but they still fall under the definition of public record. So you have to look at the fact that it's a public record and then decide whether or not it's a record you're going to release or not. If someone is listening to this and is looking for a piece of information within the government and doesn't know where to start, what advice do you have for them? If they don't know where to start, the, the first thing to do would be to find out what agency has the record. You know, we, we use the word information, but FOI doesn't require a public agency to answer questions, to create something that doesn't exist. So you'd have to sort of at least do some homework and find out where the record might be held. You're welcome to call us and ask. We, we may or may not know the answer to that. But what would happen is you say, okay, agency X has these records. Then you would write a, a letter being as specific as possible, a letter, email, and say, I would like a copy of records X, Y, and Z. Please send them to me and you know, alert me as to any fees that might exist to go along with that records request. And then once you do that, the, the agency is supposed to respond, reply, just sort of acknowledge within at least four business days. And then if there's a problem with that, then you contact us and, and we can sort of walk you through the idea of filing a complaint if you feel they're not being responsive or maybe reaching out to the agency, uh, telling you where to reach out, giving you some suggestions as to how to maybe get the record. Now, the agency can come back and say, you know, this is a very broad request is there any way you can narrow it for both of our benefits? Right. In fact, that you know, you you raise a great point. When I do my workshops around the state, by the way, uh, shameless plug, we do workshops all over the state. I've been doing them virtually since last March. If you're you're listening and you're an agency that wants to talk about FOI and learn a few things, happy to do that with you. But when I do them, I say, look, the the idea here is you want to you want to respond. But if it's a broad request, you want to make sure that you reach out to the requester and say, look, is there any way we can narrow this scope? You'll get what you need to know that much more quickly. It'll cost you less money if there are fees involved, and it'll be a lot less work for us. We always recommend that. The answer could be no, but I also tell requesters, look, you'd be surprised how well it can work 
if you work with the agency, because sometimes people ask for lots of records, Aaron, and they don't really know what they're asking for. And, and, and by talking to the agency, oh, well, I don't need all those. I just need this. And so they can have a conversation that might be beneficial to both. He is Tom Hennick, public education officer with the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. I'm happy to do it. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.